Well, it's safe to say that our culture is enamored with food. You know, if you were to go on Netflix, now there's a whole host of channels about food, about chefs, about certain restaurants. They all have particular bends and themes. A particular one that my wife and I like to watch is called Chef's Table. What's fascinating about this show is not only is it about the food and also the chef himself or herself, but it also has these bigger themes, what food does for people. There's one chef in Italy who has a steak restaurant. You know, it's these huge, juicy pieces of steak that are so delicious, there's, you don't need to add anything to it. And the way he designed his restaurant, he has one single table that everyone has to sit around. So it's this communal kind of experience for people. So all these people from different cultures and backgrounds are gathering together to eat at one table. And that's intentional for him. Another restaurant called The Gray, it's in Savannah, Georgia. It's this old bus stop that was made at the middle of the Jim Crow era. So there's all this racial dissension and history behind it. But the woman who started it is keeping some of those themes but bringing people together with food from different backgrounds and races. You know, so there's these bigger narratives that the food itself brings to light. And I bring that up because Jesus uses food for a deeper meaning. There's a deeper significance. He uses food to communicate that. We see him do that here. He communicates the audience here, and also to us, what God's kingdom looks like and what his rule over his people looks like. You know, the major theme of Matthew is God's kingdom coming in Jesus' arrival. You know, we believe that Jesus rules and is king over all things. We can say that. We know scripture talks about that. But at times, we look at the circumstances of our life, we look at the difficulty, the trials, the suffering, the pain that you and I experience, the sin that we struggle with, the things we see outside of our lives, the tragedy that we see, the sin in the world. And we can wonder and question, even though God's word says he rules, even though he says he is king, is that really true? Do we really see that? Because there's a conflict. There's tension there. It doesn't seem like it sometimes. It doesn't feel like God is reigning over us. So we wonder, does God care? Is God even there? Does God really rule over us? We'll see in this text that Matthew shows that, that the shows us that despite what the world and our circumstances argue, Jesus is reigning as king now. And as we wait for his return, we are to bring people into his kingdom. Matthew shows us that despite what the world and our circumstances argue, Jesus is reigning as king now. And as we wait for his return, we are to bring people into his kingdom. And there are three things I want to stress and highlight this text talks about. First is the misunderstanding, uh, the people misunderstanding Jesus. The second is the mercy of Jesus. And the third is our mission as followers of Jesus. 
So misunderstanding Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, and our mission. So first, the misunderstanding uh, that we have of Jesus at times. So to give you a little bit of a context, we're literally jumping in the middle of this story. This is an account that many of us are familiar with, and there's a reason for that. This is, of, other than the resurrection of Jesus, this is the only miracle that's recorded in detail by all four gospel writers. So they saw this as, as significant. All of them give attention to this story, and we'll find out why. It comes during the end of Jesus' public ministry, and there's still, as we see, a number of people that are following him, they're fascinated by him, they're interested in him. You know, 5,000 men, excluding the women and children, so it could be double at least that amount. There's still a number of people that are following Jesus, but as time goes on, if we were to continue to read, we would see that number would slim, begin to lesson. In fact, in John's account, at the end of this miracle, Jesus starts preaching and tells them what it means. And when people begin to hear and understand that their, their expectation of Jesus is different than what he really came to do, they walk away. They leave. So there's people here, even though there's, they're coming to Jesus, they have various misunderstandings of who he is and what he came to do. And there's three people or groups of people I want to talk about as we, we go through. First is the people, the crowd. Second is the disciples. And third is Jesus himself. So in this misunderstanding of Jesus, we talk about the people and the disciples. So first, the people are coming to Jesus with all of these misunderstandings and expectations that fit all kinds of boxes. Some people saw Jesus as this just great miracle worker, almost like a magician. You know, here's this man who's doing all these amazing things. I mean, he's healing people just by speaking or even touching them. You know, some have seen him raise people from the dead. And we've heard other stories of him calming storms, casting out demons. I mean, you got to see this guy. So they're fascinated by just the, the wonders, the miracles. They want to just see more of these grand displays of power. But as time goes on, as Jesus becomes more explicit in telling them what those mean for them, a lot of them abandon him. Some people are coming to him with real needs, real felt needs. They're sick. Some are dying. Some are demon-possessed. Some have these chronic illnesses that they've had for their whole life. They have these real felt needs, but they come to Jesus just expecting him to fix their life. And when he does that, that's really all they're looking for. They're just looking for Jesus to fix their problems. They're looking for him to solve their life issues. Some people see Jesus as a political figure. You know, at this point, uh, Israel is under the dominion and the rule of the Romans. And they're experiencing that tension and oppression of being under that rule. And so when they look at the Old Testament and they hear about Messiah coming, who's going to deliver them from oppression, who's going to be king and rule 
over them in their minds. What that looks like is Jesus overthrowing the Romans, overthrowing the, the Roman uh, rule and establishing his kingdom. The disciples were even in this group of people. And some, it's mixed. Some have genuine desire to know Jesus. They want to follow him. They want to trust him. They're confused. They don't know everything. They're even mixed in some of these categories and groups, but they still want to know him. So there's this, there's this mixed crowd of people that many of them have misunderstandings of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And we know that eventually this crowd will thin. At this point, Jesus' teaching has already become explicit in telling them who he is. And we already see signs of the rulers and the religious authorities beginning to plot Jesus' execution. He pronounced woes on the unrepentant cities in chapter 11. Um, in chapter 12, there's the plot against his life. His ministry in his hometown was offensive to those who heard. There's already signs that this crowd is beginning to thin. We also know that eventually, if they don't abandon him, a number of them are going to turn on him. There's going to be another crowd that's shouting to crucify him and shouting for his death. This is the group that is coming to Jesus with these needs. And it's important for us to stop and reflect in our own lives because the reality is, friends, that you and I are coming to Jesus with all sorts of expectations and desires. Some of them are genuine. We want to know him more, but at times it gets conflicted by the desires of our own heart. You know, you and I have real felt needs, real struggles, real difficulties in the life that we are experiencing now. Some of us, that looks like conflict in your marriage. You're experiencing the tension and, and the weight of that. It's bringing about anxiety and fear. And so you're coming to the Lord and asking him, please help save my marriage. Help me and my spouse to heal from these wounds and experiences. Some of us, it's our career. We just want a different job, somewhere that's, that's not as stressful, where your, where your boss isn't overbearing, where you aren't in conflict with your coworkers. You're asking the Lord, you know, give me a different career. If you could provide us with enough financial security, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm budgeting this month and I, I don't know how we're going to make ends meet. I'm working, my wife's working, and still, she doesn't seem to add up could save my child. You know, some of us are, are watching our kids and are praying for them and asking the Lord to save them, to transform them. Or the struggle with sin, with pride, with anger, with anxiety and depression that keeps us awake at night. These are real needs and real struggles that you and I have. But at times, we can come to the Lord and ask and expect him, if you're king, why is this happening? If you're really ruling over me, why am I experiencing this? Why is this happening? There's that tension. And we want the Lord to help and to fix. But at times, that desire and expectation 
might be different than God's plan for you. That doesn't mean that he doesn't care for you, but that's often the result of the, the things we think about. Surely God does not care for me if I'm really experiencing this. It seems like everyone else's life is put together and is good, and overall, struggles are pretty minimal. But God doesn't seem to care for me. Maybe God really isn't present in my life. So what do we do? We, we can run to other things, maybe this thing, or this person, or this substance, or this drink, or this YouTube video will give me some sort of satisfaction and peace and security that I don't seem to be experiencing with the Lord. Or maybe this Christianity thing is just too much. I mean, really, if, if, if this is, it just seems so distant and separate, what I read in Scripture and what I experience, this just seems too much. Thought of throwing in the towel sometimes seems like a good idea. So we have real felt needs and we're coming to the Lord and we see the tension. And even when we look around the world, all these school shootings and, and shootings in Walmarts that we're seeing, wonder is, is God really reigning if that's happening? The conflicts at the border where we're seeing our brothers and sisters being taken, is God really reigning? All the racial tension that we are experiencing in our churches and the world is experiencing, is God really Reigning. I mean, the world argues, no, if this evil is happening, it's up to us. It's our problem to fix. God's not there. God doesn't care. That's what the world teaches us. So we have all these, these felt needs. We're coming to the Lord, and we, we experience that tension, the different expectations for Jesus to fulfill for us. But then there's the disciples, because as we live in this community of God's kingdom, where God is reigning here and now, we're also supposed to bring people into that kingdom. This is what God was calling the disciples to do. But they misunderstood not only what Jesus, his ruling looked like, but also their part participation in that rule, because God was calling them and Jesus was calling them to participate in that kingdom work. In verse 15, the disciples show up and the, they say to Jesus, you know, the day's coming to an end. You're tired. Uh, you've been healing all day. You know, we're tired. You know, the people are tired. They're hungry. And the day's coming to an end. We're in a desolate place. You know, can you just send the people away? We can recuperate. We can eat uh, the food that we've brought for ourselves. They can eat. Everyone can be happy. We can get together tomorrow and, and start this thing afresh. You know, we can't really blame them for this. They see, they see a problem. People are hungry. It's the end of the day. It's time for dinner. <laughs> you know, let's, let's all find each other's food. But it's interesting. Jesus turns that on them. They come to Jesus and they say, send these people away. And Jesus throws it back at them. He says, you give them something to eat. That's an emphatic command. Jesus is saying, no, you give them something. They're hungry, you feed them. And so we can understand the disciples' response. With what? 
You know, all we have is a small packed lunch that barely feeds us. And you're asking us to, to, you know, to, to feed all of these people. You know, some of the other gospel writers talk about, you know, they don't have enough money to provide for enough food. You know, Jesus, you should have given us a little bit more time. We could have gathered teams together. We could have had, you know, uh, meetings to plan for this. We could have the right people in places. You know, if you had given us a couple months notice, this is quite a big ordeal (laughs) that you're asking us to do on the spot. Now, of course, we can empathize and sympathize with them, right? I mean, the limited resources they have, five loaves of bread and two fish. That's it. So we can understand their response, but also we have to know and understand that at this point, they had already seen Jesus perform a number of miracles. I mean, already they've seen him healing people. Right before them, they're, they're, they're watching Jesus heal people, these diseases they've had for their entire life. And he's already witnessed them doing, him doing that in the past. They've even seen Jesus raise a girl from the dead in chapter 9 and calm a storm in chapter 8. So they've witnessed Jesus perform these incredible acts of miracles right in front of them. And even understand, they're beginning to understand and be aware that this, this man is God in the flesh. This is more than just, just an ordinary person or a miracle worker. But still, they're confused about their role in that. So Jesus is letting them live in that, that tension and that desperation. We don't, we don't have enough. But what's important here is they're looking at their limitations They're looking at the limited resources they have, don't have, rather than looking to Jesus, rather than remembering all the things that he's done. They're looking to all their limitations and lack of resources. So Jesus is calling them to be a part of this kingdom work of bringing people into the kingdom of God, but they're they're looking at their own limitations. You know, we have our our own limitations. Jesus called us to bring people into the kingdom of God, but we often look at our weaknesses, our inabilities, our insecurities, our, our, you know, we don't have the education needed. Some of us haven't been to seminary. How can, you know, I witness to people or evangelize or tell people about Jesus? You know, I can't even put a dent in the, homeless problem in San Diego. So what's going to ladle and feeding someone for a couple hours really going to do? Or how can I really be an influence to these kids in our church? How can I really, what I say to them and how I teach them and disciple them, really, what, what difference does that really make? Or we look at our own struggles. I'm too messy. Man, I'm, 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 my background, I'm so messed up. How can I be a an encouragement, and a love to the people in God's community and also to my neighbors? How in my world can I, can I face these challenges that God is calling me to do that fills me with insecurity, fear, anxiety, doubt? And then we're called as a church, and our mission as a church is to be a city of refuge to San Diego. Well, we're small. How, how in the world can... Can we do that with all of our weaknesses and, and inabilities? You know, so we can 
focus so much on the resources or limitations that you and I have to this call. So we can fail to see our role in being messengers of the kingdom. Well, so here's the misunderstandings of Jesus and misunderstandings of our role in that. So how does Jesus respond to this? How does Jesus react to this? Because he knows all of this is happening. He knows that after he performs this miracle, that a number of people are going to walk away. He knows that a number of the people here are going to be shouting for his crucifixion. And keep in mind, he's been interrupted. (laughs) His quiet time has been interrupted. He departed to a desolate place to be alone after hearing John the Baptist's death at the beginning of chapter 14, which is probably because, one, he's mourning for his friend's death, and two, he understands and is aware that just as John the Baptist was killed, so too his passion, his death, is coming. So they interrupt this. They come to him with all these misunderstandings and misexpectations that he knows. He knows where these people are. He knows their sins. He knows their misexpectations for him. And he knows that for the disciples, too. But how does he respond? This is getting to the second point, the mercy of Jesus. Jesus responds with compassion. Jesus responds to this crowd with compassion. Verse 14, he says, He saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. And in Mark's account, he adds, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus is looking at this wandering crowd with all these thoughts and expectations and misunderstandings and sins and insecurities, and he has compassion on them, knowing full well that pretty soon he's going to be paying for their sins, that he's going to be suffering for their sins, that a number of them are going to be asking for that suffering. Still, even though that's true, he has compassion on them. And he shows them what the kingdom of God looks like. First, he he gives them a picture of his death. He satisfies their ultimate need. Yes, the feeding of the 5,000 satisfies the physical hunger, but there's a deeper meaning to this. There's a deeper meaning to this event. That's why I think it's recorded in all four Gospels, what Jesus is picturing for them and giving them is the the picture of his sacrifice that he'd be offering for them. And we know that to be true just simply by looking at the text. You know, if you were to look at verse 19, it says, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. He broke the loaves and he gave them to his disciples. That Matthew's use of those words in that order is very intentional. There's a reason he says those things. Because you can find those same words at another meal in the same order. You turn to Matthew 26, verse 26. This is another meal that Jesus is having just with his disciples right before his death. And he says, or that Matthew says, says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciple. It's the same words, and it's in the same exact order. So what Matthew is 
displaying for us in this feeding of the 5,000 is he's foreshadowing the sacrifice that Jesus would be making for us. And he's foreshadowing supper. Because that's what that meal is in Matthew 26. It's the Lord's Supper. So Jesus offering to his disciples, take, eat, this is my body and this is my blood. And what's amazing, this is just a fun fact. The blessing, the rabbinic blessing that Jesus most likely would have given as scholars argue would have gone something like this. It says, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Does that sound familiar? Rabbi Rob, I mean Pastor Rob, says that every Sunday. Here we are thousands of years later, partaking of this meal that Jesus was foreshadowing and picturing for his people here. Because what this event means, it's, it's deeper than just simply satisfying their physical needs. What Jesus is doing is he's showing them, I've come to satisfy your deepest need. I've come to reconcile you to myself, to fill you with my grace and love. Because that's what you need. That's what you need from me, and that's what I've come to do. Even though you don't fully understand that, or your faith might be weak, that's what I came to do for you. So he's showing people this, this deeper need. And so we can see God's goodness and grace in sending us Jesus to satisfy our deepest hunger. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That God is good enough to provide for us the sustenance that you and I need, that nothing else can satisfy, that nothing else can fulfill. No matter what it is, no matter how big the promise is, might be. Only He can satisfy that need for us. But it's also a picture of His kingdom rule. You know, one of the, the idea of the kingdom, you know, we hear the kingdom of God used so many different ways. You know, perhaps some of us have said kingdom of God for all sorts of uh, reasons and meanings. And there's all kinds of disagreements of what the kingdom of God is and what it looks like and when it's coming. What we believe, and I think what Matthew is teaching us, is that as Jesus came, he began and began to establish his rule. So when we see Jesus performing miracles, particularly in Matthew, what he's doing, he's not just doing it for show. He's not just saying, hey, watch this. Check out what I can do. There's a deeper meaning to those things. And what that is, is, is Jesus is showing his power over all creation as king. That as he heals people, he's showing them, I'm, I have the power over sickness. As he casts out demons, he's saying, I, I rule over Satan and demons. As he raises people from the dead, and as he himself is raised from the dead, he's, he's telling us, I have the power over sin and death as king. Now, as we, we, we wait, we say we be, he began his rule because we understand that when Jesus returns and comes back, he's going to finalize that rule. He's going to completely rid us of sin and death and Satan. The curse will be removed. So it doesn't mean that Jesus isn't reigning now. He is. But we're also waiting for 
the finalization of, of that reign. And what Jesus shows us here in this act of what the kingdom of God looks like. In verse 20, he says, they all ate and were satisfied. This has future implications of, of the satisfaction, the everlasting satisfaction that you and I have now but also will experience, not just spiritually, but physically when he returns. He gives us abundant blessing to satisfy the hunger of our hearts and everlasting satisfaction. But also it's important to mention that Jesus meets their physical needs. That yes, these have deeper significance, but he still feeds them. He still heals them. He still cares for them. So as Jesus, friends, has come to you and I to save us, we also know here that God cares for your struggles, cares for you in your marriage, cares for you in your job, cares for you and your kids, he cares for your anxiety, cares for your depression, cares for your struggle with sin. Here we see a Savior who satisfies our spiritual need, but also gives us and displays for us a caring love that is the characteristic of his rule and kingdom. So our mission, in light of that, in understanding those things, is to bring people in. It's to bring people into the kingdom. It's to tell them of Jesus coming for us. Now that first begins with us understanding and being aware of the fact that we're members of the kingdom that God has met us in our sin, that God has cared for us, and we, we do that by coming here to worship. One of the beautiful things my, one of my professors said in seminary that I'll never forget, he says, when you come to worship, it's like you're looking at the kingdom of God through a keyhole. It's just this picture and display of God's kingdom where all of us are gathering together, singing praises to the Lord, hearing of his grace and mercy, to us, which is what we're going to be doing in the new kingdom. Except then it'll be with no sin and death, no problems and struggles and anxieties. So it's imperfect now, but we get to experience it here when we come. Partaking of communion, being filled, literally, God giving us a sign and a picture, a tangible sign that you and I can taste and see to know of God's goodness to us. But also he calls us to be a messenger of his kingdom. You know, Jesus knowing the, the misconceptions and misunderstanding of the disciples, he could have easily just been like, you know what guys, I got this. It's too much to explain. You guys are obviously confused. Step aside. Let me handle this. He could have easily done that. He being God could have easily just fed the people in his own power but he uses the disciples. He uses them in their weaknesses and confusion and doubt. He still uses them to serve, to serve the people, to give the bread and the fish to the people. And that's what he's called you and I to do, is to go out and feed and care for the needs of the people. That's why we stress things like not just coming to worship, but coming to things like community group gives an opportunity for you and I to grow together in fellowship with one another, 
and encourage one another and care for each other and be cared for. That's why we stress things like serving in kingdom kids because we believe and know that God's kingdom is about support and care for one another. That's why we want to stress things like the ladle ministry, not because we're thinking that we can end hunger, not because we think we can end homelessness by our own power, but we believe that our actions in literally feeding people and caring for their needs is a picture of the kingdom. It's a picture of God's kingdom where he cares for us and we can be that picture and image to these people. That's what God is calling us to do as we understand and are aware and know of God's love for us. He calls us to serve and to love one another, the people that God brings to our life. Matthew shows us that despite what the world and our circumstances argue, Jesus is reigning as king now. And as we wait for him in his return, we are to bring people into his kingdom. Amen? Let's pray.